Welcome to the eGovernance Academy podcast to discover the future of governance. eGovernance Academy has assisted digital transformation globally in more than 130 countries. Our experts will share their insights and worldwide examples on how digital technology could benefit every society. Tune in for the Digital Government Podcast every Wednesday. Welcome to the Digital Government Podcast. I'm your host, Federico Plantera, journalist, sociologist, and researcher. And today with me, I'm honored to have Trond Arne Unheim, futurist, author, podcaster, and one of the keynote speakers of our upcoming uh, e-governance conference in May. Welcome, Trond. Thank you. Good to be here. So today we are talking, uh, we are somehow introducing not only like you, but also um, the book that you have actually just uh, uh, out in the stores. And... Uh, Somehow also the topics that we will address uh, and that you will address during the e-governance conference that is coming up in May. But your latest book is called uh, Future Tech. Um, so how to capture value from disruptive industry trends. But industry trends, of course, there are many industries. And uh, But one of the, uh, one of the things that uh, struck me when I was reading about the book is that indeed, also on your own uh, pages, you described it as a tour de force of futurist thinking. But why has it been a tour de force? Look, I think, first of all, it's a book, you know, I have it here so for you and I are looking at it. So yeah, we, we can, are uh, looking at it. We <laughs> are. Yeah, this is a podcast, so people can't see it. But it's a it was an interesting book, honestly, because I am a futurist that is deeply interested in technology, but a lot of the book is not about technology. It's about government. It's about disruptive forces that, in fact, I usually say that what drives technology is not technology because there's so many other interesting factors that influence the way that technology is developed and should be developed. And indeed, in the future, if we don't embrace a humanistic development path for technology, not only will the technology be less effective, it'll also most certainly lock us into paths where we can't get out of. And it ties into the discussions we are having right now about AI, about ethics, but also just simply about efficiency because efficient technology for the future and you know whether it's a tour de force, of course, that's something to be judged uh, after the fact. But what this entire book is about is creating a framework for understanding disruptive forces um, and it is aimed towards people who don't necessarily think of themselves as experts on technology. But my my belief is that in the next decade, everybody has to start thinking of themselves as experts in technology. And we can get into this, but I think that the polymaths of tomorrow should not just be an elite. We all have to become polymaths. And this ties into the role of government, which is the entire chapter three of the book, I am very bullish on government. There is no way to get ourselves as a society into a good place long-term that goes uh, beyond uh, thinking that government is the key force to actually drive a bunch of the other disruptive forces, to be a supporter of technology in various ways. And I can line up five different ways that government interacts with technology and should interact with technology. But also, of course, as a guarantor of positive externalities, social dynamics, even of business models, and, and a lot of other interesting things. And it all comes back 
to a very aggressive and positive notion of e-government in the future. Perfect. Let, let's divert from this topic for a moment and then get back to it. Because first, I would like you to explain uh, to our listeners what are these disruptive forces? Because, of course, of these disruptive forces, technology is still one of them. But then what are the others and how do they interact and intersect, let's say, in order to maybe also provide us with new paradigms of digital governance, let's say, for the near and also distant future? Yeah, so very quickly. And first off, I am fully aware that whenever you create a framework, and frameworks are popular with some people and hated by others, mostly hated by academics, but they're very, very useful as just kind of little mental models to think with. But I am under no illusions that my four or five, there's actually four core forces, but a, another sort of surrounding environmental force that I speak about, they are just thinking tools. They, they don't mean, they don't exist anywhere out there. So I wanted to point this out that even though, you know, there are simplifications, but they really help to avoid technology determinism, which is really the big thing that I, you know, that I'm fighting in this book. So technology is one force. And, you know, by that, I do mean, Uh, science and technology coupled together and the development of such, whether it is in research labs, you know, in government funded projects or anywhere that goes on, uh, you know, private or public or even in nonprofit corporations. Number two is business dynamics and business models specifically, because this used to be a topic only in business schools. But as it turns out, if you have the right business model, you can create a completely new market. And where that ties into government is that governments, of course, can regulate. They can create entirely new markets and have many times. They can also stop the excesses of a market. So in fact, they have a huge role in business. Um, uh, thirdly, so regulation in and of itself is, of course, where government plays in, in policy and regulation. So that would be kind of the third force. And that's a very misunderstood type of uh force because people think, oh, it's just a negative thing. You know, policy is just restriction, but policy can also enable. So I speak a lot about the enablement factor of policy and including that regulation can enable as well because you set up guardrails. You can even take role in standards. Then my, my last force uh, before we get to environment, which of course is super important as like the force that sort of underpins everything else. But before that social dynamics for me is a very wide definition of, of really anything that has to do with how people interact with technologies as consumers, as citizens, or, or indeed in any other role, you know, just as um, individuals or, or as social groups, you know, social movements, for instance, is completely misunderstood in, in lots of technology development and has also been misunderstood by government. You know, governments tend to be scared by social movements, but in fact, they are regulating the way they are kind of an outlet to demonstrate whether you are on the right path or on the wrong path. So these are the top sort of four forces. The environment, of course, has cast itself into the debate very forcefully with the uh, uh, coronavirus, but it was no less there before. And in, in that, um, I, I would add that anything having to do with the physical infrastructure of where we are operating our business or our society or our government 
also goes into this environmental force. We have to consider the interaction between the physical and the digital. So when I say the environment, it also means the physical built environment. So it's both the natural ecosystem that we have to take care of, uh, although, and, and when we do incursions into it, it affects technology development, such as we have to develop vaccines or other things, but also the built environment and the structures that we put in place, such as cities and urban areas or large infrastructure that really plays into what we can do with technology and where we can do it most efficiently. Okay, so uh, basically, we when we talk about these four forces, we really like you said you mentioned tools. So basically, your book somehow not just like describes, but envisions also what is the toolbox that will uh, that governments will have to be well versed in to face the new normal. No, because the, the large, the big topic about this year's e-governance conference of uh, e-governance academy is indeed like the new normality and. Uh, We also heard a lot, uh, we've read actually a lot of articles already starting from last spring, for example, saying or like trying to picture, oh, the new normality will be a bit like this or a bit like this or a bit like this. But at the same time, it's, I mean, for some things we are seeing this new normality taking shape somehow naturally and spontaneously a bit by itself. But for many others, we are not seeing that. For many other things, we're just seeing a pull back to many just old dynamics and say, okay, this was just a parenthesis. That's, uh, we're, it was just like laughs and giggles, let's say, until when then you have to get back to actually, I don't know, somehow incorporate, let's say, the new dynamics, the new trends, the new habits that people have developed during this time. But then uh, what what will be in how this new normality will look like in your, in your opinion, at least for the next 10 years? Not because, I mean, it would be impossible, of course, to talk about the new normality in 2050. Already, the new normality of 2021 in 2018 was unthinkable, let's say, for what happened. But at least... It's funny you said years. that. It's funny you said that, Federico, because I'm just starting a project where I'm going to be looking at uh, what's going to happen in the years 2050 to 2070, which is something futurists have shied away from lately. <laughs> Uh, because, because you know, futurism has, has, you know, first we, we had a renaissance when nobody knew what the future was and were very interested and, you know, science fiction, you know, everything was really hot. Then in the last decade, it's been really troublesome for futurists because everybody had assumed, you know, the iPad and, you know, and uh, Apple generation, everyone thought they knew the future because they had seen so many fascinating consumer devices and they thought we don't need futurists anymore. We know what the future is going to look like. This is what I'm, um, this is the attitude I'm fighting. And in fact, it's funny that I'm running a panel session on the next normal. I don't believe uh, that there will be a new normal mm -hmm. uh, or a next normal. And I think with you that some things haven't changed at all. It is a little bit difficult to see which things haven't changed. And we can go into which things I believe haven't changed. For instance, I don't think virtual work is going to be as big of a thing this decade as most people say, I don't think cities will die this decade. I don't actually think they will die the next decade. Uh, and there are very, very deeply rooted reasons why that won't happen. On the other hand, there are some things that, that are changing and that changed, I think, for the better or certainly changed more swiftly than we had thought. Digitalization permeated society. And I think e-government increasingly is government. 
And I'm not just playing into the hands of the Estonians here, you know, who obviously have had this attitude for a while. But I really think that as these boundaries of physical borders are blurred, and you know, we are introducing things that are transnational in character and certainly in spirit, if, even though the regulation, for instance, around vaccine passport will be national, right? And it's called passports, but they will have to operate transnationally in a much different way than other kinds of passports. And in fact, what gives you the passport, of course, maybe the issuer is the government, but really the permits that you're issuing, they have very little to do with nationality. They are, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they have to do with something we have constructed, which is somewhat vir virus risk contained or whatever you know the notion of a vaccinated person you know is mm -hmm. but in any case we need much what are the implications of this next you call it the next normal we need longer plan planning cycles far longer than any government far longer than any elected government but even longer um, than any of the parliaments that are typically eight plus years so not just the regular day-to-day -day governance structure, but even the legislative cycles. We are now going to need to start planning in decades and not in two, three years cycles. Very, very big shift. And as the government needs to lead that way, in the various roles, and in my chapter three in this book, Future Tech, I speak about the five roles of government. We, we can get into it, but essentially what all of that means an expansive role of government means there's an enormous need for reskilling in government. We are not going to go to a positive future without the best people working in government. I will ask you one like yes or no question, basically, on the exactly this topic, like on this sentence that you just said. Do you think that in a way your your background, in a sense, the country where you come from, let's say, uh, somehow affects also the way that you see, like the the socioeconomic area where you're from, because you're as a Scandinavian, of course. Like, do you think that that affects somehow also the the role, but in the sense of like the expectations and the normative expectations that you have towards governments, in the sense that they need to do more and better, for example, in order to limit the effects of the crisis? I'm talking about the role that, for example, welfare states had in. Uh, in that geogra geographical area, indeed, uh, very. Oh no, no doubt. I'm very heavily influenced by where I grew up. But you have to uh, recall that. I mean, I may have grown up in Norway, but uh, my f the first year of my life, I was actually uh, living in Denver, and I've lived ten years in the U.S., probably ten years in Europe altogether, between Belgium, Italy, and the U.K., and I have traveled <clears throat> fairly widely. But having said that, yes, I think mm. I grew up with a sense that the government was generally good, ethical, and competent, and that it had very wide-ranging responsibilities. Uh, of course, I am partial, I have worked in government, but I've also worked in other places. I worked for the EU, and I've worked for private sector and nonprofits and startups, and uh, now as an investor. So I've seen it from many, many different angles in many countries, and I know that it's not as rosy uh, you know, the picture isn't as rosy in every country, and neither is it, may I say, in, in the paradigm sort of Scandinavian uh, welfare states. These welfare states have massive, massive structural issues, and also they have ethical issues when it comes to considering the boundaries outside of their welfare states. I, I happen to think, and this gets us into some murkier territory, but I mean, I do think that uh, 
in the next 25 years, there is a need for a global constitutional convention, hmm. right? Because the boundaries of the welfare state were constructed a couple of hundred years ago, you know, in a European process that was heavily nationalistic, where we were building up the natural governance structure at the time was the nation state. Yeah. So the best nation states also built welfare states and were able to maintain them in various ways, negotiated with their citizenry. Well, today, we don't have a choice. We are one global whole, and we live in different parts of that global entity, but the regulations that govern that activity um, and the risks that we are all now, I think, becoming more aware of as of the last 15 months, those risks cannot be contained within the nation state's regulation. Mm. which actually is an enormous opportunity for e-government. It's just that it means transnational e-government, and it means interoperability across borders. It means a lot of things. Transnational e-government. Transnational e-government, Just yes. on this point, because we were, it, I like the, the bridge that you built between those two topics, in a sense, like the welfare state, because like welfare states and... Uh, Uh, public spending and the role of government, of course, like um, has some foundations, which are basically the social contract that within a nation state, different groups with different power resources got get basically to the point of laying out. But e-governance and transnational e-governance or e-government should basically rely on a social contract that is not anymore national, but that somehow finds a place for technology and digital development in it, and that cannot be limited to the borders of one country, but maybe a bit more to the ones of one international organization or group of or cluster of countries, such as the EU, for example. Yeah, well, except it needs to be far wider than the EU, and it has to be much more efficient than the United Nations systems. Now, the United Nations consists of some somewhat efficient bodies and some fairly inefficient bodies. What I'm talking about, you know, is that we either have to reinvigorate those institutions that we have very drastically, like they have to rebuilt, be rebuilt from, you know, nearly from scratch. Perhaps with this, perhaps we could keep a treaty-based uh, foundation. I'm not going to get into the details of this. this is subject of some of my next work it's a it's a it's an interesting thing to get into mm -hmm. but um even just at the level of you know where do we find ourselves what are the topics for a progressive not progressive politically progressive but a actionable strategy for international uh, kind of e-governance i think we just need to we need to rethink the role not just of the nation state we need to rethink uh the boundaries of technology we need to build for people we need to be built for people everywhere um we need to have service delivery to the last mile meaning the last mile you know whether it is in africa or you know in a village in estonia and there's something about a built-in co-responsibility that has a regulatory framework to it Mm -hmm. which governments and at least the intuition of people who have had some experience in government, they are probably well suited to at least start designing this new system. But there are many organizations now working, you know, such as the World Economic Forum, another entity that I work with, 
and they have essentially just started to work on this kind of basis without the new institution, right? Uh, the whole notion of a expanded sort of stakeholder engagement, where mm -hmm. um, where large corporations are taking on actually policy positions and are are executing actions that aren't in their immediate self-interest, but are in their long-term self-interest, those are things we're going to need to see a lot more from in the time to come. So I think in my keynote, I want to point out that e-governance is now no longer a governmental-only responsibility. So there are private big tech uh, that I would consider within the umbrella of people that I would start talking e-governance with. They would include the uh, top 20, 30 companies around the world that deliver tech. They are also part of e-governance. Tranda, I will ask you one question, one last question for this episode of the Digital Government Podcast, which is actually per... like. It's just the natural consequence of the last statement that you made, which is... Uh, I mean, this is something that maybe maybe might not resonate, let's say, too well with with some of our listeners, or maybe also with the Estonian context in itself, uh, the country where I am speaking from, after all. Uh, but do you think that it's so e-governance and e-government does not exist in a vacuum, let's say, and uh, if e-governance and e-government and governance and the role of governments cannot be seen as two separate identities, let's say, anymore, but they overlap. Then one question that I would ask you is, do you think that in the most recent years, let's say, I would say from like the last five, 10 years, there has been a certain technological determinism also in the way that e-governance was designed and realized and conducted and some other aspects and some other topics that pertain, some other approaches actually that pertain more to this humanistic side that you talked about maybe have been a bit neglected so far, maybe also because, and this is actually my personal opinion, but I would like to pitch it to you and see what you think about it. Maybe because also like we've seen many, I don't know, uh, tech people or engineers or programmers instead becoming social scientists, but not really including this side of the knowledge equation into the picture as much as we could have. Look, I think that there has been an enormous amount of good done in e-government activity over the last decade. So I'm not going to discount that. And the best governments generally are on the right path. It's just that they are still not including enough stakeholders into the discussion. Because, for instance, they would take private stakeholders into account, either just sort of thinking of how they could limit their the excesses of, of, of their activity, but at the same time, they are, of course, highly dependent on these actors to implement those very same services. But it is this very strange dichotomy of a servitude and then kind of in like moments elevating yourself as like the teacher who's like preaching back. And I think we need much more of a partnership going forward where you realize that no one's really out to get anyone else. And if they are, we will collectively find out. 
And when there are excesses, such as the the whole debacle around fake news, or 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 indeed the entire situation with social media, this is very clear, very simple problem. We actually, the nation state is a sufficient level to just crack down on those excesses, uh, set up some new principles, and shut down the actors who don't listen to that. Th- this is not even controversial, and it's been like discussed as if it's the big challenge of our time. Mm. I find it an epiphenomenon. It's not even interesting to talk about. The real challenge is, is what is the new partnership with the actors that have the combination of the global technological infrastructure, which is always emerging, and luckily there are startups that can mushroom out of nowhere that suddenly become platforms to reckon with, and I think that's a good thing. But whoever those actors are at any given moment, those are the actors that should be on an even playing field discussing. There is no point in creating new structures such as the EU, like let's say if you were creating the EU right now, it would be rebuilt completely differently. Why? Because public and private partners need to be on an even playing field. Uh, Obviously, that has an enormous uh, burden of proof also on these private entities because they can't continue to exist as they do today without, you know, with quasi-governmental, uh, you know, structures of, um, uh, you know, you can call it stakeholder governance all you want, but when all you have to control the activity is a board and maybe a stock market, those are some extremely poor tools to ensure that a big company stays ethical and even that it stays productive. So we need to we need to insert completely different tools into all of our structures, whether it's government or private sector, and certainly the largest actors in, in both, including actually large NGOs that are starting to take a very detrimental role because individuals, individual billionaires, I should say, who have become the patrons, the new patrons of our kind of do-good society, are also becoming a huge problem because their decisions are also not subject to what I would call a governance and principled discussion. So all of these things come together in the notion of e-governance. There is an enormous challenge and a super interesting topic for this conference. I hope we can not only just debate it, but that we can get a little further than abstract principles like interoperability, fairness, like we should all believe in trust. All of those things are ingredients, but it is the process model going forward. That's what we have to settle. And we don't have a lot of time. I think we have the next decade to get this right. If not, I mean, this is the futurist speaking. I think we have about 500 years left on this planet. So that'll be my next book. Perfect. Throned. thanks a lot. I loved chatting with you today. It was very, was a very interesting conversation. And uh, I'm sure it was interesting also for all our listeners. And uh, if, and I am actually quite sure that you will want to hear more about uh, Throne's book, but also these topics, then you definitely have to tune in to his keynote uh, coming up at the next uh, e-governance conference in May between the 18th and 20th of May. And in order to see that, of course, you will have to just go to egovconference.ee and uh, register to, to be, so that we basically will see you there. And uh, there you will see Tron participating to the conference. But thanks a lot for joining us today in this episode of the podcast. Thanks, Federico. So that's all from us. And uh, tune in to the next episode of the Digital Government Podcast. 
This podcast is brought to you by eGovernance Academy. Tune in on next Wednesday.